I always like it when somebody notices what's going on. First Chronicles chapter 16, and just want to read verses 28 and 29, and this was a message we started two weeks ago, and uh, I want to refresh your memory a bit, and then uh, finish the story on the glory of God, the history of the glory of God. First Chronicles 16, verses 28 and 29. If you would, just stand in honor of God's words. We read these two verses together. I'm actually going to back up to verse 27. It says, Glory and honor are in His presence. Strength and gladness are in His place. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank You for revealing your glory to us. And Father, I just pray tonight that you'd open your word as we, we study that glory once again and that you'll just help us to uh, see where it's being revealed and how we're to be a part of that even now and how we can next expect to see your glory again. Father, we love you and we just ask that you bring fresh to our memory those things we learned a couple of weeks ago. Help us to learn these new truths and not just learn them for the purpose of knowing them but learn them for the purpose of applying them to our lives. We love you. May you get all the glory tonight, for it's due your name. Amen. Thank you. Seated. Two weeks ago, we talked about the history of God revealing his glory to mankind. And let me reveal, uh, remind you of a few incidents in Scripture without going back into all those incidents again so we can pick up where we left off. But the first is just to remember that God is peculiar about his glory. He wants to make sure he gets glorified. He's worthy of glory. There's no spot in him. There's no sin in him. There is no uh, selfishness in him. He is God, and because he's God, he deserves all the glory that he desires us to give to him. And he's worthy of it, and we should glorify him. He says in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. So we're to, sh to glorify God in our lives. And as we reveal tonight, again, the history of God's glory, you will hear something. Uh, we've been in primarily in the Old Testament. We'll very quickly put an end to that tonight. Talk about where God revealed his glory in the New Testament, where God is revealing his glory in 2006. And by the way, if you're listening when that point comes, you'll hear something that you probably won't be told anywhere else, and that is the reason that you are on planet Earth. And then you're going to hear when you can next expect to see the ultimate revelation of God's glory, because it hadn't happened yet. I'm talking about the big kahuna of glory, and when it's coming, and what it's going to do. And I'm going to prove to you from Scripture that it will be the greatest manifestation of God's glory that has ever occurred. Because Scripture talks about it in a different fashion. So let's review very quickly where it was that uh, uh, God uh, showed His glory in, in the Old Testament. The first was in the Garden of Eden. You remember that there uh, He walked uh, with Adam and Eve. They were in their sinless nature. I mentioned last week, and it was a new thought for some of you, that Adam and Eve, you know, the Bible says they didn't realize they didn't have clothes on until after they'd sinned. The reality is, is they had clothes on before they were sinned. They were clothed with fire. The Chinese character for light shows a man with fire radiating out from his body. 
It's the second oldest written language in the world. A lot of biblical concepts are built into that language. It just boggles my mind. You know, the word for boat, which is chuan in Chinese, it means a ship or a vessel with eight people. Well, think back to the first boat you can think of, Noah's Ark. It was a ship. How many people were on Noah's Ark? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, that's eight people. Hmm, coincidence, maybe not. Chuangta, which means create. The word used when it says that God created man from the ground, the word chuangta in, 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 in Chinese means that God, man was made out of mud or clay, was breathed into and instantly became full grown and walking. That's what the character means if you understand the parts of the character. And so next time some evolutionist tries to tell you that some uh, single-celled animal just accidentally happened and then that animal grew an eye and then he grew fins and then he uh, swam up on the ground and he turned into a lizard and the lizard climbed a tree and turned into an ape and the ape came down and became a college professor of biology, you let them know that the word create from the second oldest written language in the world means that God breathed in to a man made from mud or clay and was instantly full-grown and walking. You want to read about this? There's a book by Nelson Kang called The Discovery of Genesis. And you ought to go to any Christian bookstore and find that book and read it because there are over 300 characters that tell the story. I love the one for covet, which means to desire something that may be bad for you. And it shows a woman making a decision between two trees. And in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. And the woman made the wrong decision, and hence that's the word for covet. It's really interesting. It's also interesting that one of the Chinese words for wife shows a hand reaching through a man's flesh to get another person out of the inside of the man. And what do we read in Scripture? That God reached into Adam's side and took from his side, and from that he made Eve. What an amazing thing. I read this last week that biologists have discovered something just fantastic. Uh, and I don't understand all about this because, you know, when I have to find out a biology question, I usually has, have to ask my wife. But I've discovered something interesting. They say that DNA, that deoxyribonucleic acid that's in every cell of your body, DNA is actually passed from the mother to the child not really from the father. The chromosomal structure, part of that's from dad, but the DNA is from mom. And they have analyzed DNA now for, for uh, decades, and they came to the conclusion last, last week that all living humans today came from a single female human. Wow. And they looked for a nickname. You know what they named her? Eve. But here's their problem. They, they, they could do that kind of jokingly, you know. The problem was is that they analyzed the rate at which DNA changes, and the rate suggests, the scientific evidence suggests that the human race is no more than six to 7,000 years old. And, of course, the, the evolutionists say, well, we just don't understand that yet. The reason they don't understand it is because they know we've been around for millions of years. Interesting enough, if you believe the Bible story, you would know the human race was probably six to 7,000 years old. You see, it's amazing. I believe someday scientists will climb the hill of knowledge and find out the, the theologian's been sitting there all the time. And uh, it's just amazing how God continues to verify himself. This was an exciting time in the garden, and God revealed himself to man. He only put one prohibition there. That prohibition was a, was a, a commandment about a tree in the garden, and he gave him that commandment. By the way, there's a whole other Chinese character that tells that story. 
And yet, they decided that they wanted to be like God. They bought into the serpent's temptation. By the way, the word tempter in Chinese means a serpent speaking secrets under the cover of trees in a garden. What a coincidence. And so he, he, uh, they bought into his lie that they could be like God's. They wanted to basically have the same kind of glory God had. They rejected God's glory in seeking their own, and thus they fell. So the first time was God revealed himself in the garden, and man rejected it. Then he reveals himself in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 33, we read last time how that God you know, gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He reveals his glory on Mount Sinai, and then he comes down, and the people have thrown gold into the fire, and Aaron says, and out hopped these two little calves, and that they were worshiping. And then he breaks the Ten Commandments and anger, has to get them again. And basically Moses has to pray. And he says, God, don't leave us out here dead. Uh, you show your glory in our behalf. And, and he does. And, and uh, he, when he comes down from the Ten Commandments, his face shone because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. And yet he comes down the second time and, and he says, okay, will you now follow the Lord? And they were okay for a little while, but the very first time God says, okay, it's time for us to go in the promised land. You know what they did? They didn't choose the glory of God. They said, oh, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We're puny. Those people in, in this land of Canaan, they're big dudes. We don't want to go fight the big dudes. We're scared of the big dudes. And so guess what? They rejected an opportunity to glorify God because Joshua and Caleb believed. Both Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord will give us the victory. See, they knew where the victory came from. But the majority didn't. Because I'm not so sure we always are doing the biblical thing by making decisions always based on majority rule. The majority is often wrong. It certainly is in Scripture. And so, uh, once again, God revealed his glory to the nation of Israel and was going to take them to the promised land. Instead, they disobey him. They have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they refuse to glorify God. Then in Exodus 40, God reveals his glory in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. He gives them a, a pattern for the tabernacle and even for the temple. He tells them how big it's going to be, how big the various compartments are, where the table of showbread is supposed to be, where the altar incense, where's the candlestick, how big is the holy place, how thick is the curtain between the holy place and the holiest of holies, what's the specifications of the Ark of the Covenant, that thing Indiana Jones went looking for in the movie. Uh, where, where is the people supposed to camp around the sides of this? Later when the temple's built, he tells them about how to divide the courts up and how the paneling is supposed to be made of cedar and what's supposed to be on the paneling and it's supposed to be overlaid with gold. All these things were done for the glory of God. And it says in Exodus 40 that when they built their tabernacle that a cloud came down and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Later when Solomon built the temple, it says the glory of God filled the temple. And it was so bright nobody could even go into it. That's how awesome God's glory was. But what did they do when they had their tabernacle? They found reasons to murmur and complain against God. God would say, okay, it's pick up, it's time to leave. And they got to a little place called Mara. And in spite of the fact that everywhere they had been, God had provided water and he provided manna. They get there and the water tastes bad. And what did they do? Do they say, well, glory to God, he'll take care of us. No, they complain. They gripe. They murmur. Have you ever noticed that our first natural tendency when we're faced with a problem is not to glorify God because he's got a chance to prove himself strong. It's to gripe and murmur and complain. 
And that's what they did as the children of Israel. And they missed seeing God on display. Finally, Moses throws a tree in. The water's made sweeter. But the fact is, is every time they had a chance to complain for 40 years, they did. And then they get into the promised land and they have one great victory. And they're so confident after they won the battle of Jericho, you know, where Joshua blows, he tells everybody to blow their trumpets, the walls came tumbling down. They were so excited after that, they went to the next battle, they didn't even bother to pray. They went to Ai and they were defeated. They were run out of town. They had to run like frightened school kids away from the bully. You know why? Because they went into battle without any intention of ever giving God the glory. And then when they get into the promised land, they didn't keep it all. And then we have the temple. Solomon builds this temple. And this is kind of where, uh, actually right before this, let me tell you one little story about the Ark of the Covenant in case you're wondering what happened to it. There was a, a priest by the name of Eli. Now, Eli was fond of barbecue, and uh, he liked to barbecue with all the trimmings on the potatoes. I ate there today, that's why it's on my mind. And, and so, uh, but he was known for being rather hefty. How do I know that? The Bible says that when he heard the news of the death of his sons, he fell off his chair and he was so fat he broke his neck. Just coming off his chair. So fat he broke his neck and he died. What happened though is because he had this excess in his life, and parents catch on to this, when parents have a character flaw in their life, it'll be magnified in their children. What parents excuse in moderation, children will indulge in in excess. And so his sons used to steal meat off of the altar that had been offered to God to eat for themselves. Not only that, they would bring prostitutes into the tabernacle area. That's pretty bad. And so their sons were named Hophni and Phinehas. And one day the Philistines were really giving Israel a hard time. And Hophni and Phinehas said, well, you know what? This Ark of the Covenant, man, it's, it's bad news. Everywhere, everywhere the Ark of the Covenant goes, God goes. And nobody whoops us when God's with us. So let's just carry the Ark of the Covenant out in battle. So they carry it out in battle with the Philistines. And they get out in battle and the Philistines rout the Israeli army. And they take the Ark of the Covenant. And Hophni and Phinehas are killed. Eli hears the news. He falls off his chair. He breaks his neck because he's so fat. And then Israel is devoid of the glory of God. Right at this time, the Bible tells us that Eli's daughter, who was Phinehas' wife, it says his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, near to be delivered, when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains were came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said, Fear not, thou hast born a son. She went into labor when she heard the bad news. A son is born, and says, But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod. Y'all remember the story, Ichabod Crane, you know, Sleepy Hollow, all that kind of thing. That's where the name came from. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel. Now, kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. The ik in front of it basically means the glory has left. So she has just had a son, which should be an occasion for celebration for most women. And yet instead, because the ark has been taken and the the the, the physical item that was often associated with the presence of God was no longer in Israel. She names her son, the glory has been departed. Now I've seen a lot of interesting names for Baptist churches. I, I've seen churches that just had a church split and they go out, 
Brother Henry probably knows where I'm talking about. Uh, one church uh, split several years ago in East Texas. And they formed two new churches, Harmony and Unity. Duh. Uh, I, I've known some other churches, you know, they'd pull some weird names out of Scripture. And, you know, of course, I pastored Shiloh Road. And most people don't know the significance of all the things that ever happened at Shiloh. And there's a lot of interesting things. I would hate to ever go to a church called Ichabod Baptist Church. And yet I have been at some churches where the glory had departed, where the church was ready for a funeral because people had failed to give God the glory and they were there just running their own little religious kingdom, but there wasn't anything of the Holy Spirit happening there anymore. Let's pray that that name change never happens here, that we always give God the glory. Well, then Solomon built this temple, and I closed last time talking about that, uh, you know, he made these, these 900 shields, about 300 of them are about as t- little taller than I am and about the same width wide, and they were solid gold, and then he made a bunch more that were probably about this big around, and he'd line 900 shields, 450 on each side, between the palace and the temple, so that when he went to go worship at the temple, the sun shining down hits these solid gold shields. It reflected on the ground. There was the sparkling, and of course, I'm sure the, the soldiers holding the shields probably had to wiggle once in a while, maybe had a little itch under their armor, and as they did, and that shield moved, the light moved on the pavement, and so it was like this constant shimmering, golden light on the pavement and it reminded Solomon that he was on the way to visit with a king who was far greater than he would ever be. Solomon, the Bible tells us, is the greatest king who ever lived on the face of the earth. Had more riches, more wealth, more wisdom than any other king that's ever lived on the earth. But there was one that was so great that he he created solid gold shields to remind him how much greater that king was. The king of kings and the lord of lords. And yet, uh, sometime later, after he had finished being king, Rehoboam, his son, was in his stead. Shishak, who was the king of Egypt, came. He stole the 900 gold shields. Rehoboam didn't run after him. Rehoboam didn't try to go get back Israel's national treasure. Instead, he had 900 shields made out of brass. And because brass kind of looks like gold, and when the sun beats on it, it shines, but it only lasts for a little while because sooner or later it tarnishes. And I, I have polished some brass tables at our house. I hate those things. Uh, and you know what? Don't buy brass furniture. It was given to us, and I'd like to give it back sometime. It's hard to polish. You know what we do? We substitute religious things for real worship. We substitute coming to church for really getting in touch with God. We substitute, you know, uh, warming a pew for really getting out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and glorifying God wherever we go. We substitute uh, rituals for a relationship. We substitute things that are cheap for things that are costly. David had it right when he said about something he gave to God, how shall I give to God that which cost me nothing? And yet we're always looking for a bargain to fulfill our religious obligation, and then kind of get out of the deal. You know what happened to that temple? Sometime after uh, they uh, took the golden shields and put brass ones, Israel lost a sense of the glory of God. Probably the shields got tarnished. They quit thinking that was a special deal. I imagine someday they got tired of polishing, decided they weren't even going to bother with that. The scripture tells us in the Old Testament that they actually went into the temple on the cedar paneling on the walls and they carved images of animals that they worshipped. 
in the temple. And then if that's not bad enough, there was a committee of about 70 elders in Israel. They later became known as the Sanhedrin. They actually, in the Old Testament, the 70 elders of Israel had idols made to themselves. Can you imagine coming in South Park Baptist Church one day and seeing that Brother Henry, with all of his woodworking skills, has made little statues of Brother Henry and put them up on the walls for us to come in and worship. That's what they did. What an awful thing. They stole the glory of God. So God gave his glory in the garden. It was rejected by man. He gave it to Israel in the wilderness. It was rejected by him. He gave it in the tabernacle in the temple. It was rejected by him. And now comes a really cool revelation of his glory. Turn to John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14. I want you to see this. He's rejected in the garden, rejected in the wilderness, rejected in the tabernacle, rejected in the temple. But here's one more time he reveals his glory. John 1 and 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So she says, in Jesus we see the glory of God. See, Jesus was the revelation of God's glory. In fact, just turn over to the epistles and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8. And what I want you to see is Paul backs up John when he says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says... In verse 8, he says, Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified, what does it call Jesus in 1 Corinthians 2.8? The Lord of glory. Jesus is the very glory of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he is a, 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 the express image of the glory of God, of the radiance of his person. Jesus was the image of God. And yet, what did they do to Jesus? Did they, did they say, whoa, here he is. Let's glorify him. No, they missed it. Instead of glorify, they shouted, crucify. And they crucified the Lord of glory. Once again, man rejects the glory of God. So will God ever reveal his glory again? I want you to turn with me to Matthew 24. And I want us to read verses 27 through 30. And I, you're going to see something different in this passage than any other passage that you will ever read on God's glory because it's going to use a term here to describe God's glory that it uses nowhere else in Scripture. Matthew chapter 24, we'll begin at verse 27. Now listen closely and see if you can pick up the different word here. He says, For as the lightning comes out of the east, shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of earth mourn. The reason all the tribes are mourning is because the Christians have already been gone. These are the people left after the tribulation. It says, and they shall see the man of coming, see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with, look at this, power and, look, great glory. This is the only time in Scripture it refers to great glory. 
See, everywhere else we talk about the glory of God. We see it in the garden. We see it in the, the, the wilderness. We see it in the tabernacle. We see it in the temple. We even see it in the person of Jesus Christ in John 1. But he says, when Jesus comes back again, you're not going to see glory. You're going to see great glory. You know why you're going to see great glory? Because Jesus is going to reveal his glory in a way that mankind has never seen before. And it's going to shake the whole earth when he comes. And out of his mouth is going to come a sword and it's going to wipe out the armies of the earth in a moment. But not until they've had time to mourn at seeing the great glory of our God. There is great glory. The sun, it, it, it knows that it's going to be so outclassed by the great glory of Jesus Christ that the Bible says it refuses to shine. The moon will refuse to reflect any light. Blackness will cover the universe. The stars fall out of heaven. What's the purpose in shining anymore when the great glory of God is there to be revealed? You won't see the sun, the moon, or the stars, but you will see the great glory of Jesus Christ. That is going to be one awesome day. It's going to be an amazing day. He will light up the sky as it comes in power and great glory. All the angels of heaven are coming with him. Matthew 25 verse 31 says when the son of man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. A number of years ago I, I like horses. In fact as I understand the Fort Worth Science Museum now if you happen to go up there they have a film on the history of horseback riding. I've I got to go see it just because I, I love horses. And uh, once upon a time in my life, I actually rode in a rodeo. I'm too old to ever do it again. Don't want to, but I have did that once upon a time. But I love horses. Now, the interesting thing about it, though, is a few years ago, I had an opportunity to see the Royal Lipizzan Stallions. Anybody ever seen the Royal Lipizzans? These are amazing horses. During World War II, there were these, these beautiful horses. There was just like one herd of them anywhere in the world. They were right in the middle of a battle between the Americans and the Germans. And so General George Patton called a German general, managed to get in contact with him. He says, I know we're fighting this world war, but let's save the horses, because he knew this German general had a fondness for the horses. And they ceased their fighting long enough to get the royal Lipizzan stallions and mares out of that part before World War II resumed. These are amazing animals. They're the only horse I know of. They can jump high in the air, and I'm talking three, four feet straight up, and they can kick all four legs simultaneously. There's not another horse that does that. They're also very unique in that they're all white, except for when they're born. They're all black when they're born. When they reach about three years old, they all turn solid white. In fact, as last I heard, there were only eight Lipizzans in the entire world that had not made the color change, and they're even more valuable. These are amazing animals. And I remember the first time I went and saw the Royal Lipizzans, there was about 60 of these horses in a show. Man, it was the most incredible show I ever saw. So a few years ago, I was really excited to hear that the Royal Lipizzans were on display at the Texas State Fair. And I went down to the Texas State Fair, and they brought out eight Lipizzans. Not 60, but eight. And I still enjoyed watching them but when you've seen 60 royal Lipizzans, watching eight is a little bit of a disappointment. Because the first show was a whole lot bigger, a whole lot more glamorous, a whole lot more interesting, a whole lot more adrenaline pumping than watching a few eight come out. Well, 
It's because that first one was a no-holds-barred, all-stops-pulled-out extravaganza. Folks, when Jesus comes back, it is not going to be a low-budget, one-horse show. He will come in great glory. And what an amazing thing that's going to be. The fact is, it's so great that it says every knee. doesn't matter whether it's here on the earth or it's under the earth. No matter where your knee is, it's going to bend. And you're going to sing with your tongue, whether you were saved in this life or you were lost in this life, God's glory will be so great that even the lost will have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God as Father. But what about 2006? Where's the glory now? This may surprise you. Did you know God is revealing His glory in 2006 according to His Word? And His Word tells us where. His Word tells us where you should be able to go to see the glory of God on display. And if you figure out the secret to this, you'll know why you're on the planet. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament, one of Paul's epistles. So after Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, you'll get over there to the book of Colossians. If you look with me in chapter 1, you will see a fascinating statement. I'm just going to start reading in verse 25 where Paul is talking about the gospel and about the church and its mission. He says, Wherefore, talking about the gospel of Christ, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. You see, he says in the Old Testament, people didn't understand everything about the tabernacle. Now we know the tabernacle is really a picture of Christ because we have that spiritual hindsight. We can now understand everything in the Old Testament because it really talks about Jesus, who's the glory of God. Verse 26, even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and generations but made manifest to his saints. Now listen. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now listen. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know where you ought to be able to see the glory of God in 2006? In Christians. You should be able to see God glorified in the lives of Christians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When people look at us, they ought to see something that glorifies God. Not something that gives credit to the world. Not something that looks like it's in friendship with the world. They ought to see in us something that gives glory to God. Now, one thing we haven't really talked about is exactly what glory is. That's pretty interesting considering the Bible refers to the glory of God more than 500 times. It talks about the glory of God. Glory refers to the display of God's attributes and qualities. Now, all of us at some point put on the display of our attributes and qualities. Sometimes my wife thinks I'm putting a few too many of my attributes on display. And sometimes we do that. We put on our human nature, and it isn't very pretty, Brother Wendell. Human nature isn't. But guess what? God, when he displays his attributes, like his compassion, 
his love, his righteousness, his patience, his long-suffering, his tender-heartedness. You see, when he does that, it is always a glorious thing to behold. And so it means his attributes. The Webster says glory is the honor, praise, adoration, exaltation, or worship. So what are some of God's character qualities that ought to be showing in Christ in you the hope of glory? Compassion, holiness, purity, grace, patience, justice, truth, mercy, goodness, love. So if Christ is in you, the hope of glory, how should you be showing the glory of God? Let me give you some suggestions. These are worth writing down. One is forgive others. Forgive others. Let me tell you something. Every time you hold a grudge against somebody and you don't forgive them, you are not giving God the glory. Some people, they get mad about something somebody did. Often we're mad at somebody else in church because the reality is, is that the world often offends Christians less than Christians offend Christians. The biggest hurts come from those sometimes in our own fellowship. David says, I was wounded in the house of my friend. But you know what? We need to be able to forgive because that is Christ-like. And when you forgive, it puts Christ on display in you. And so you glorify Christ when you do that. What's another way? Show compassion. Love the unlovable. There are some folks that just, they're a little hard to love for us. Why? Well, maybe they're from the other side of the tracks. Maybe their behavior's a little different. Maybe their speech is slurred. Maybe they don't dress as nice. Maybe they haven't had a shower as often as you have. Maybe they're just cantankerous. Maybe they've got some bitterness in their life and it's kind of hard to saddle up next to somebody like that. But guess what? Jesus loved me when I wasn't worth loving and I should do no less. Be loving. What's another one? Help other bear their burdens. Jesus even said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill, or he said through the apostle, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We ought to bear each other's burdens just as God gives us grace. Give aid and encouragement to others. Sometimes, 1 Corinthians 8 says, my abundance is for your need. Other times, your abundance is for my need. But we ought to, we ought to bear each other's burdens. Do good to others, even when they haven't done good unto you. Follow God's leading in your life. If God starts impressing on you that he wants you to devote your life to missions or, or go and serve in a ministry or do whatever, follow his leading. That puts him on display in your life. Be patient with others. Pray for others. Wait while God works on them. Now we have a pastor who is a very patient man. Otherwise he wouldn't still be your pastor 49 years later. I will tell you he has a lot more patience than your associate pastor does. And probably than most of you have. But you know what? God is long-suffering toward us, isn't he? I mean, how many times have you had to go back to God and ask him to forgive you for the same thing you asked him to forgive you for a few weeks ago? You're still fouling up and he's still patient, still listens. Be patient with us. Pray for him. Not everybody will fit in your mold. Live Think of this one, live in such a way that no one will think less of your God. You know, I, I, I shared this with my Sunday school class some time ago. It was kind of a unique experience. I, I got a call about two weeks ago, and it was from a guy I used to work with. 
And uh, he said, uh, you know, I'd like to get together for dinner with you. I'm in Dallas, and I'd you know, like to get together. And I looked at my calendar and said, well, you know, Thursday night, I've got time. I can come up and meet you in Addison Thursday night. I'll pick you up at your hotel, and we'll go out to dinner, and we'll talk. And uh, I assumed at first that he wanted to talk about, you know, work. He wanted to talk about he was, uh, he was coming back into the fold. He'd worked for our company before, and now he was coming back, was rejoining the company. I thought he wanted to talk about that, find out what stuff was going. And when I got together with him, he says, I really don't want to talk about work. I want to talk about the other part of your life. I said, okay, let's talk about that. And he told me an interesting story because he's only been saved for two and a half years. And in two and a half years, he has grown from being a brand new Christian to leading the men's ministry at his church. Amazing what God's done with this young man. And he told me, he, he, says, he says, you know, I says, I was hired a few months after you were, six years ago. And he, says, and, and he says, when I was hired, my boss told me he just hired this guy down in Texas who was a, a Baptist pastor, and, and he was all excited about that. And he says, I knew that would never work. He said, I, I knew that that would be a conflict of interest. You, you'd be out and you'd have to represent something about the product, and you probably wouldn't be truthful, and then I'd know that you were a fake. He says, or, or you would take advantage of the company because you had ministry and you wouldn't be able to keep the balance between the two. Or there'd be something. He says, I, he says, I watched you for three years waiting for you to mess up. That was a sobering thought to me. Do you know that there are people out in the world watching you as a Christian waiting for you to mess up? They're waiting for you to behave in some way that will allow them to think less of your God. To live in such a way that they can't. Chris told me later in the conversation, he says, I watched you for three years and you didn't mess up. He must not have been watching all the time. But you know, he says, one of the reasons I became a Christian was because of you. That's exciting. Live in such a way nobody thinks less of your God. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. We need to live in such a way as that they'll glorify your Father. Let me give you some other quick specific suggestions. Number one, confess your sins. In Joshua chapter 7, there was a man by the name of Achan. He had sinned. He eventually is going to die for his sin because he caused Israel as a whole nation to sin. But when Joshua confronts Achan with the nature of his sin, he says this in Joshua chapter 7. He says, Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him. He says, God's already said that you're the wicked one. You've got a sin. You ought to give God glory and then confess your sins. One of the ways we glorify God is when we keep our sins confessed up to him. We ought to offer up a holy life. If you notice, it says here in this passage we read earlier in 1 Chronicles, he says, Give unto the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering, come before him, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God is beautiful, God is holy, and when we worship, we ought to be that way too. Get your sins confessed. Fact is, I don't know if you know this, the Bible, there's a reason in the book of Genesis it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Do you know when worship service for South Park Baptist Church actually started? Last evening at 6 p.m. See, Jews knew that at 6 p.m. in the evening on Saturday night, it was really Sunday morning. See, the day started in the Jewish calendar at 6 p.m. in the evening, not at one minute after midnight in the morning. And you know why that's a good way to think? Because if you want to really get the most out of Sunday worship, you ought to spend Saturday night as a family or as an individual getting on your knees and asking God to bless in the services. That's what we ought to do. Offer up a holy life. 
Let me give you one verse that if you, if you want to take one verse to go home and read, meditate, memorize, give this verse, Psalm 8411. Write that down. Psalm 8411, and I'll read this verse and you'll have the message tonight. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. And then listen to this promise to those who glorify Him. It says, No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. You know what happens when we glorify God? When we really do evidence in our lives that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, when we show compassion and love and keep our slates clean with God, do you know what really happens? He says, God will withhold no good thing from you. I don't know about you, but I can look back on the last many years of my life. I see a lot of successes. I see a lot of blessings. And I don't see one of them that I deserved. I don't see a single one I deserved. But you know what? I I do try to give God the credit because he has done it all. Will you glorify God? Will you live in such a way this week as to not give anyone an excuse to think less of your God? What did they hear you talk about? What kind of jokes do you tell? What kind of work ethic do you have with your employer? How diligent are you in your studies? What kind of relationships do you have? What kind of friendships do you keep? Do you encourage one another in the things of God? Or do you just warm a pew? Christ in you is the hope of glory for 2006. Let's stand.